Welcome into Hardcore Penn State Football. This is Corey Lestoki. Hope you're having a fantastic, fantastic Mother's Day weekend. Shout out to all the moms out there. Penn State moms are the coolest moms. So thank you guys for being awesome. Anywho, Sean and I will be back in just a second to talk to you about Penn State football. Today we are going to be reflecting on James Franklin's career so far at Penn State, the good and the bad. So uh, a little bit more of a look there. We'll have some recruiting updates for you as well. I'm really excited to get this one going. No trivia question for you today as I am on the road, but I hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Let's get after it, everybody. Welcome in to Hardcore Penn State Football. I'm Corey Lestoki, and with me, as always, on this Mother's Day, Sean Kane. How are you doing today, Sean? Hey, Corey. Doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. How's your uh, Mother's Day going so far? You get the chance to uh, hang out with Mother Kane? Yeah. Yeah. We um, we actually were intending on going to dinner tonight, but we actually, but we moved it to tomorrow. Uh, but I got her. I got her flowers. That's good. M- moms typically like flowers. My mom doesn't actually like flowers that much, but um, yeah. I think I think maybe my brother got her flowers anyway. But um, it's a it's an important day to really appreciate moms because, as I mentioned on intro to this, Penn State moms especially are typically not just awesome, but they're typically social network worthy. I mean, they are Penn State moms at tailgates are awesome to to videotape and to record and, and they just take care of everybody at the same time so shout out to all the penn state moms out there yes definitely oh also i wanted to give a personal shout out to my brother who made my mother very happy this week in graduating from the scranton fire academy so congrats, congrats yeah, Pat. yeah congratulations to him that's that's fantastic i mean um it's because of him that i had to bring my recording stuff with me this week so um, a <laughs> yes. little self little selfish on his end yeah how dare he (laughs) um but no seriously congratulations and congratulations the whole family on that because that's you know typically a a group effort so yeah Um, very proud yeah well there's other things to say congratulations for before we get into it and 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 today we're talking about james franklin and reflecting on his career so far at penn state his tenure at penn state before we do that though um there's some other congratulations first of all congratulations to saquon barkley and he made the promise when he left early, declared early, that he was going to come back and graduate. And little by little, inch by inch, I'm assuming classes in the summer, he has fulfilled that, Sean. He has graduated with a degree in communications, um, and, and he can check that box off as being a Penn State graduate. Yep, yeah, you always love seeing that. And I think Franklin asked all those guys that leave early to make sure they come back and graduate. And it's good to see Saquon uh 
fulfill that promise. Yeah, and okay, correct me wrong if I'm wrong, Sean, but Shaka Tony also I saw graduated today. So I think I think Shaka Tony was a part of that as well today. And if someone can double, we'll, we will double check that and we'll keep going. But I'm pretty sure Shaka Tony graduated today as well. So or this weekend as well. So um, a little shout out to him. Also, he did okay, sweet. Um, so so congratulations to him. Um, one other graduation note, and there was a lot of people that graduated. Jake Pinnegar, I saw graduate. There's there's a heap of them that did. Um, but I thought we'd point out, you know, a guy that went was a first round pick, and still got his degree. That's that's still pretty cool to see. Um, one other cool little graduation story, which I'm sure everyone around Penn State is sharing their graduation stories to their friends and family this week. Um, but Jahan Dotson obviously went 16th overall to the New York, or excuse me, yeah, well, the Washington, D.C. Commanders, almost to the Jets. We were talking about the Jets a second ago. I had the damn Jets in my head. Um, the Commanders, and was going to skip his graduation for, for rookie minicamp, and Commanders coach said, not so fast, my friend, not so fast, my friend. We are going to uh, demand that you go to, and go to your graduation. It was a big deal for Jahan Dotson. He's one of the first in his family to get his college degree, and so he was able to do that and celebrate that moment with his entire family. Yeah, yeah, again, like, that's that's just so great. Uh, Ron Rivera is really really well-respected coach in the league. He's, he's a good, uh, good f- from everything you read, he's, like, he's almost like a father figure to most of his players, so that was, that was awesome. Uh, Jahan comes from a great family himself, um, and we're if you're a Penn State fan, you're a Jahan Dotson fan, so you love seeing him, uh, you know, go and get that degree. Yeah, and shout out to everybody that did finish and get their degree because that's that's big time. That, that is big time, and and all just in general for all the Penn State students out there. Congratulations! I know it's it's been a little bit now since you graduated, John, and it's been even uh, just a little bit less for me, but it's been a couple of years now for both of us so um and it's a cool experience and you know it's it's a little bit you typically have a little bit of sad experience but it's um it's bittersweet for sure i will say and i don't know if you saw this because i think this is relatively new news um did you see the the vandalism i did i did how about that like and they picked this weekend to do it when everybody's getting their picture with the statue i think that's probably uh, the point yes, but probably the point it gave me huge, like, Criminal Minds vibes. Did you see the stuff they were writing? No. Oh, dude, it's, it's like, it's not, it wasn't just, it, it wasn't just red paint on the Nittany line. It, it's like, a, there was multiple things. They did, like, the Alumni Hall. They did Old Main. They, they did a lot of different things. And they wrote things. So on Old Main, they wrote, Time is Up in all caps. And then blue words that said death by cop, death by hazing, death by suicide, and then death by PSU culture on other entrances to other buildings. Hmm. Interesting. So. I mean, you know, that's not the way to go about it, guys. (laughs) And there's another note that said should have listened when you had the chance. And then I. And then, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, that's crazy. I mean, and and they're updating this as they go. So, 
you know anything about it, um, I guess there's a number down here. I guess I should throw the number on there just in case anyone is listening. But if we're the reason why it, the, it, the case is broke, I want credit. Um, 814-863-1111. University Police. So that's an ongoing thing right now, Sean. But it's, yeah, a little kind of crazy. Like, I read it. I'm like, this feels like a damn serial or uh, Criminal Minds episode starting. Yeah, I mean, don't they have cameras by by the by the lion? I just kind of assume they did. Yeah, well, I, I, I guess feel not. Like in happier news, I just thought that was crazy. I was like, man. So if anyone's heard about that, I mean, there's an onward to say article about it, but yeah, go check it out for yourself because I really you see that it's all in red and blue. So if you go see the pictures, it's like it kind of makes you realize that yeah, it's it's a lot scary when you see the writing. It's like. It's not like in blood looking like it doesn't look like the Chamber of Secrets or anything like that, but it's uh, it's still kind of sketchy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it then the the what what the words actually were were kind of almost borderline threatening. I would I would say threatening for sure. So yeah, I don't know what that's all about, but it's sketchy and scared and and you know what I mean I don't know what this is all about, so I'm not gonna speculate, but. I mean, if there is something to do with Greek culture, I mean, let's be honest, Penn State has not had the best um, uh, history with with those kind of things. So I don't. I, who knows what this is the issue? But that's obviously not the way to go about it. Um, but you know that who you know there are blemishes on Penn State's record as a whole. I mean, there's no other way to say it. So um, hopefully that gets resolved, and hopefully you know it, it, it's scary because whoever did this felt that that was the only way they could get something across which is is sad so hopefully they uh hopefully get that taken care of hopefully that person's heard in the uh in the appropriate way and and, and things are resolved so um and happier news sean Irvin charles we, t- we talked about him briefly last episode and making some news uh, one of the better competitors so far in uh rookie minicamp i don't think all of them, for example, they, they got Garrett Wilson in the first round. I don't think he's playing yet, but still, he's Irvin Charles, the undrafted free agent, technically from IUP, former Penn State transfer, uh, caught that awesome, which we might be talking about today, um, talking about Franklin's tenure, uh, that awesome catch for a touchdown. I think Joe Moorhead had the, the, uh, the phrase of the ball caught him, and, but that was a big touchdown in that moment. Um, doing really well for the Jets, so... Congratulations, Irvin Charles. Hopefully he can maybe make the team. Yeah, and, you know, Irvin, he, he was never lacking for talent. Um, he always had all the tools to be a good player, and you kind of saw them on display on that Minnesota touchdown. Um, he had the speed and size, but it just never really came together for him at Penn State. But it's good to see that he had a productive career at IUP, and now he seems to be doing uh, off to a good start with the Jets, so it would be awesome if he could make a ro- if he could make the roster. Yeah, that really, really, and I mean, we can talk, and I want to talk a little bit about it. But you think about that, the receivers that we had around that time with Irvin Charles and Jawan Johnson, two really tall, incredibly athletic receivers. Both of them end up transferring, and both of them look like they might be playing in the NFL. Um, it makes you kind of wonder because. Penn State just hasn't done a good job with those kind of receivers. I mean, look at those two. 
and obviously they're talented enough because they're about to be in the NFL. And then a guy like Justin Shorter, who's a five-star guy coming in, didn't hang out very long, really struggled in the one year he was here, and he transferred to Florida. And although he hasn't had an incredible year, he's probably, if I had a guess, going to be number one or number two on the receiving depth chart over there uh, heading into his final season. So it just it's something that Penn State just, I feel like when it comes to larger receivers, um, hasn't done a fantastic job of maybe utilizing them the right way. Yeah, and like you said, it is weird because we've had success with tight ends uh, with uh, Friermuth and Gesicki, but those tall, blanky wideouts and, and the and the, the those tall, big wideouts in the Franklin era just haven't generally panned out. Um, not really sure what to attribute it to, though. I mean, you could you could argue the lack of consistency in the receiving coaching room, but I mean, I mean. Right, yeah, and other receivers do extremely well. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's just a scheme thing because like we don't go, we don't ask the the guys. I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of it in a way that could be positive, but there's no real. We like guys that can take the top off of a defense. I get that, but we still. We I mean, we threw so many goal line fades previously so i just i don't know I, there's no other way to put it i don't know i don't know yeah and i would get confused why we would run the fades to like kj hamler and we did have pat fryermuth right there <laughs> but you maybe with the taller receiver we could have i don't know maybe they would add more faith in running those fades with the taller wideout yeah i mean that's i guess but or or even a tight end at that point i don't know but I thought that was an interesting kind of thing to, yeah. Bygones be bygones. <laughs> well, we can get into that in a little bit later. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say. It, it's just one of those things where it's it's one of the things that patterns that kind of does show up over the over the tenure of James Franklin. I mean, I believe even what Geno Lewis eventually transferred out too, right? He did. He went to Oklahoma. Right, that's right, right. And then obviously played some CFL. So it just seemed like all the guys that could go up and get the ball, a lot of them left. I know obviously Chris Godwin, a guy who could go up and get the ball extremely well, stayed and did really well. But I don't know. It just seems like they're, they're – I, I don't know. Maybe that's just something that you have so many talented guys, only so many can blossom, and everyone else is going to have to find somewhere else. And Godwin was like, um, and don't don't take this as an insult to the coaching staff. He was kind of idiot proof. Like you can't screw it up with him because he was so good. Everything. Um, yeah. That there was no way he was going to be a bust. He was just too good for that. That yeah, that's true. I and mean, you could almost make the same argument for Allen Robinson too. Yeah, um, just, yeah. There was no messing him up. Um. Well, let's move on from that. I think that's. You know, the, hopefully he makes a team. I hope rooting for Irvin Charles to make the team and all that. Hoping for a lot of guys to make the team. Obviously, I one guy I'm curious since we have a little bit of time. Um, I'm curious to see how John Lovett. I'm curious to see. I have a weird feeling that he he did go to Carolina, right? I'm pretty sure. Um, I believe so. Yes. I think he has a very Christian McCaffrey like vibe to him. I'm not saying he's anywhere near as good as Christian McCaffrey, but I think he has a similar style. 
and I have a weird feeling they're going to be able to utilize him in an appropriate way. I, I feel like he might end up being a guy who makes a name for himself in the NFL. I don't know why. It just kind of came to me. But I, I think that Lovett's a guy you got to pay attention to, even though I couldn't remember his name. I think Lovett's a guy. Don't be surprised if a couple of people get injured or something like that and Lovett gets the ball in his hands and he doesn't let go of it. I don't know. He, he didn't really hit it off here at Penn State. Had some issues early on staying on the field, but I think he's a guy to hold on to and and, and remember. Yeah, possibly. Um, you know, he is talented. He had success at Baylor. He did struggle at times at Penn State. He had some off-field issues. And I think the thing that's going to stick with Penn State fans uh, in their mind is he's the guy that stepped out of bounds against Ohio State um, when he caught that what would have been a touchdown pass. Um. But yeah, he's he's he could catch the ball. He's got some good, he's got some you know pretty good wheels. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what he could do in Carolina. And like you said, they do have a guy who is the best at <laughs> the best version of what Lovett does, and McCaff and Christian McCaffrey down there. Um, so yeah, that could be that could be something to look out for with. Um, uh, well-known head coach down there, Matt Rule. Yeah, Matt Rule. Are we are we gonna go down the Matt Rule uh, rabbit let's hole? Let's not do the Matt Rule thing today. Are you sure you don't want to? You don't want to talk about it? I'm good. I think we beat it to death last week. Okay, we'll we'll, we'll give it a, a week off and we'll come back to it. Uh, although we will be talking about him probably early on in this episode. But um, before we go, uh, quick recruiting update. We didn't really have that much. They offered a lot of scholarships last week or so. So if you've been following us on Twitter at HardcorePSUFB, a lot of scholarships went out to 24 and 25, class of 24 and class of 25. So if you're paying attention there um, on Twitter, I've been trying to do a decent job when I can. I mean, best I can. If kids come out and tweet that they did it, I try to get them. Um, a lot of offensive tackles, Sean. A lot of offensive linemen. So I guess Phil Trotwine's making his mark early. Um, so keep an eye on that. The only other thing that we were wanted to mention was Rodney Gallagher setting his uh, commitment date, which obviously can change. We've seen that move up and, and move back for other guys in the past for the 4th of July. And I believe he will be done with all of his official visits at that point. Correct, Sean? Yes, he will. Yeah, he's taken all of his visits in June. That should be a, from what I understand, it should be a Penn State-Notre Dame battle to the end there. Notre Dame feels like they really need to get this guy. And if, obviously, I think Penn State feels they really need to get this guy. So it's, gonna, it's an important one. I want to say Penn State's the last one, right, for him? They visit, he visits him last? I think so. I believe so. So um, that's, yeah, that's a guy that's important to get. He's a local kid. He's from Uniontown, PA. So I feel I feel pretty confident about it though. I feel I feel good about it. Yeah, I think that's a guy who the only reason I would feel bad about it is if he did not visit Penn State after his Notre Dame visit. And then it's that's not good. So as long as he does visit Penn State, it's hard to imagine he'd visit Penn State as his last visit and then go somewhere else. But I mean, crazier things have happened. Yeah, definitely. And it's um you know, Seventeen-year-old kids—they're—they're they're, they're tough to predict, <laughs> and you know they—they they change their minds a lot. And it's a big decision. I can't blame them for for 
if we're going back and forth on it. Um, so it's um, it should be a battle, but it should be a battle to the end. So I'm very interested to see what he does. You know, just for the record, if I was a recruit, I would take all my official visits and probably visit even a little bit more. I would probably visit as much as I could until they wouldn't let me visit anymore before I made a decision. Official visits are fun. Like you get you get free food. You get it, it, first off, I believe everything is completely paid for. You get you get a you get a whole weekend there. Um and you're treated first class the whole way. So I would I would also take all the official visits that I possibly could take. What would your top visits be? If you got to go five places, where would you go? Let's just say, okay, let's say top four, assume you're going to Penn State. Okay, so Penn, so Penn State, obviously. Um, uh, Alabama, because I think you got to meet the GOAT. I think you got to meet the Saban if he's offering you. Um, USC, because it's LA. Uh, probably Miami, because it's Miami. Beach, it's the U. And... Hmm... I'd probably go uh, maybe UCLA because again I just I, I just I think Los Angeles is the coolest place so that's probably who I'd go to and I get to see the Rose Bowl okay I, I like some of those I think Alabama you hit it you gotta go to Alabama I like the USC one as well especially Lincoln Riley being there um, I I get the Miami one, and I th- I agree with you. I probably would do the same thing. Um, but then I would probably go. I think I'd go Texas. Honestly, I think Austin's a pretty cool place. I think, and really Austin mostly for the food. I, it's a big food one for me, and I'm sure Sarka, you know Sark has something going on there that would be worth seeing. And then I would say maybe it's something you would have chosen ten years ago, but I still would go to Oregon. I think. There's still a lot of really cool things there, facility-wise, that it's probably worth seeing as well. And then you hit all parts of the country, right? So you hit Northwest, North, you know, Southwest, Southeast, Armpit of America, and Penn State. So you, you get it all. Yeah, Clemson seems cool, too. Yeah, um, I thought about everything it. Everything but... I've heard is Clemson is a really cool, like, it's gorgeous. It's, so, yeah, it's sort of like Penn State in a way that when you have to visit it, and when you visit it, you really get it. So I, I might say Clemson, too. So here's the thing. And I hate to... to, to people are like, how dare you? Penn State's a beautiful campus. Penn State is a beautiful campus for a different reason than other places. It's not beautiful because it's abs- like, like it's the prettiest thing to look at. It's beautiful in its own way because it's Pennsylvania and you get that nice fall weather and the, and the leaves and all that stuff. It, it's... You fall in love with how you feel when you look at Penn State. That is different from the South. You go to a Clemson, Auburn. These places are literally gorgeous to look at because they're gorgeous to look at. It doesn't matter how you feel about the place. They are, they are just physically good to look at. Mostly because they can do yard work all year round. Mostly because they don't have to worry about any sort of snow. And they can do construction all year round. So these things are always maintained to the highest ability. They always have flowers. They always have everything is 100% the same and gorgeous all year round, unlike Penn State, where you get like 
three months of the awfulest weather of all time, and then you get like three months of really nice weather. They get that really nice weather ten months of the year. So I, I'm not saying Penn State's not pretty, but you go to a Clemson, you go to a Old Miss, you go to a Auburn. These places are gorgeous because they're because they're literally gorgeous and not just because they make you really feel good and they're also pretty if that makes sense yeah totally totally i've only been well i've been to disney and um i have family that lives right outside of atlanta and it, it's different down there um i went in the summer too and things just you could t- I, I know exactly what you mean. Like, it's probably just easier to maintain everything. Um, like, they, they get so little snow down there that when it does snow, they don't know what to do. Like, my aunt and uncle said, who I who I visited, they'll be asked by their neighbors, oh, did you put your cha- the chains around your tires? And it'll be like t- an inch and a half of snow. And they're like, No. So it, it's it's a completely different mindset down there as to weather and just things of that nature. Right. Yep. It, it is it is completely different. And for people that will come down for the Auburn game this year, they will kind of get a little, little taste of that. So, um, well, that being said, Sean, um, this was your kind of idea. So why don't you break it down? What we're going to be talking about today? Sure. So you know, we, we if you listened last week. Um, we talked a little bit about James Franklin right at the end and just our, I think we have similar attitudes toward him and some different opinions towards him. So I think we could do, uh, this week, a summary of what the program was like when he got to Penn state, what he's done in his time there, um, what he's done to, to mold the program. And where we're at currently in his tenure, and we're also going to do, um, we're also going to name what we think uh, was his most important game per season for him. Yeah, I mean, let's. I guess let's start it off. Um, I think it's hard to break down Franklin. I I think you have to look at it in two ways, right? Like, so when we when he first got to Penn State, it was taking over Bill O'Brien's leftovers. You still had Hackenberg, so you expected something, especially from what Bill O'Brien was able to do with Hackenberg. But then it was like, how much of the sanctions are still involved, right? Because although the bull ban was lifted, they still had, I think when he when Franklin got to campus, they had what? I think he said four or six offensive linemen or something silly like that. Like that's that's all they had. They had to bring guys on the defensive side. Like the offensive line was was neglected for, and it wasn't just Bill O'Brien. It was neglected at the end of the Paterno era too, um, but but substantially during the Bill O'Brien era. And so the early outlook for Franklin was, well, how is he going to survive with the sanctions and, and and the leftover of the sanctions? So I think that's the perspective we looked at him early on, and then. And we can talk about it once we get there. But once the Big Ten championship happened. The perspective changed. We the outlook on him changed. We were then changing glasses to a different prescription that was more of, are you a playoff caliber team? And we can have the argument on whether or not 2016 was too early for that to really be the case. Um, but I think it's funny to look at Franklin because now you know it's been five years since all that stuff. So 
is it fair to at least look at him in those glasses now? But it, it, it's a it's a very large juxtaposition from how he took off and how he started his career at Penn State. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I completely agree with all that. Um, when he took over, it was the in you know pe- people give Bill O'Brien a lot of credit. Um, but I remind people all the time, Bill O'Brien took over a pretty good team and a team that hadn't been as depleted by the sanctions as when James Franklin first took over. He had an older team, um, uh, O'Brien I'm talking about, in 2012, in 2013, um, that had a that had won, I believe, 10 games in 2011. So he had an experienced team. Um, but then when Franklin takes over in 2014, a lot of those guys are gone, especially the guys from from uh, that that were there for in Paternos last year. So there are a lot of young guys. There was a very very thin offensive line. Uh, there are some talented skill position players, but it's hard to make that work with that with an offensive line that was just so atrocious. And the team did suffer for it. Uh, but at the same time, going 7-6 and six in 2014 was, was way different than going 7-6 and six in 2021 because of the depth issues. And I, I think you have to, you, you'd be crazy not to, not to acknowledge that. I agree. I agree. Um... Well, let, let's start, and we can start with the 2014 season. And, again, the, the expectations were fairly low. Um, the, when I look at this season as a whole, I think it was very, very important they won that first game against UCF. I think I think that did wonders for him. I think that really did put – it didn't honestly matter how bad the rest of the year could have gone. I think that was – that was a big time comeback win. Was that the game Deshaun Hamilton had a bunch of yards? I don't even know that was Deshaun Hamilton. I don't, it was Deshaun who had. Yeah, yeah, I think they both had a, a crazy day. Um, and in the game winning field goal, and it was just kind of like, okay, like, I don't know what this guy is, but he's a winner. And it was very evident that he cared about the team and he, and he was going to bring energy. And I think for. Penn State fans at that time, that was just good enough. It was like, okay, this guy just wants is here, and he's. It's about Penn State football winning and having a good time again, and that was enough at that time. Yeah, I agree that it was it was a fun game too. That that first game against UCF uh, over in Ireland, it was I first and only time Penn State ever played in Ireland, and uh, Sam Ficken, who's one of those guys that were that I believe Joe Paterno. I think he was on the team for Paterno, but he didn't kick. He didn't kick then. Um, so he was an old. He was an older guy that had been around the program. Struggled early on. So to see him kick that game winner was cool. Um, and it kind of, it kind of because you know, even before that game, going into it, like you said, there wasn't that much expectation for that year because if reasonable fans knew what the scholarship issue was so him so us being able to win that first game and if we don't win that first game we don't go 500 we don't go to the uh the pinstripe bowl 
um, that probably that that might set us back a little bit. You yeah, know, it's it's tough going under below five hundred. I agree. Um, just looking at the season as a whole, their home wins wins at home, Akron, UMass, and Temple. That's it. Only home wins. They lost to Northwestern six to twenty nine at home. They lost to Maryland nineteen to twenty, um, which was a pretty big game at the time. And they lost to Michigan State ten to thirty four. They also lost to Ohio State. But before I bring this up, I just want to say, of all the Big Ten teams they played that year, the most points they scored against any of them. Now I just want to double check this before I say it, and it is true. Was twenty four, and that was against Ohio State in double overtime. Of all their opponents, they scored the most against, which eventually was the national champion Ohio State Buckeyes. Oh, no, I'm sorry. They, they didn't win that year, right? No. They did win that year, yes. Um, yeah, 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 that's right. And um, they scored the most points against them. I know it was overtime, but even without the overtime, it's still the second most. They only scored 19 against Maryland. They scored 6 against Northwestern, 13 against Michigan, 13 against Indiana, which they won. And 10 against Michigan State. And by the way, a little two-point loss to Illinois, 14-16. Oh, that game is terrible. It seems like Penn State and James Franklin like losing to Illinois by two points every, what is that, eight years? Or seven years. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that was kind of the beginning, though, Corey, of James Franklin-led teams playing a little above their weight against Ohio State, but usually coming up short. Um, they played. They, they, they got a not not that they got lucky because we had to go do it. Zettel had that pick six because the first half didn't go well. I think they were down like seventeen three in that first half against Ohio State. Then Zettel had the pick six early in the third quarter. Uh, Zayi Blacknell tied it. I think that's what happened. And then they lost in overtime. But yeah, that was really the start of that. And that that those and it's funny to think that we scored our most amount of points uh at home against in Big Ten play against um Ohio State, who would win the national championship that season. It's it's interesting. And I think that I if you ask Penn State fans it's probably their favorite game of the entire season, even though they lost. That was kind of the game like, okay, like Franklin knows how and, and that just I think shows you why Franklin was such a good fit for this for this fan base because he knows what the wideout means. Like he gets it and he's able to get his guys to play up for it no matter what. And he he knows what it means and it's one thing to know what it means, but he also is able to just use it as fuel the right way. And it's never seemed to be an issue where people are overhyped. It doesn't seem like people are, it seems like it is a true weapon that I'm not, I don't want to say like Paterno didn't use it the right way, but it literally seems like Franklin has found a way to channel that white out in the appropriate way. Um, and, it, and it's helped a lot. I, I don't want to dwell too much on every single game on every single season, Sean. Um, things were very bad after that loss to Michigan state. Um, they go to the pinstripe bowl and I remember my dad even being like, well, like, okay, it's a pinstripe bowl, whatever. Like, but they're playing Boston college. It's before new year's. And 
I think I was actually at a ski lodge watching this game. And I don't know about for you, but I think something clicked. And I don't know if it was just because of what Chris Godwin was able to do in that game, but something kind of changed. It was a win, and it, it seemed like it was a win. It, it almost was like the same way the, the UCF game ended, right? It kind of gave that same vibe, that same sort of optimistic, like, okay, we know what happened, we know what we've been through, but things seem to be going okay, no matter all these bad losses I just listed. Yeah, I was there. Um, and that was one of the – that was – one of the most fun games I was ever at. Uh, I didn't think, I didn't know if Yankee Stadium would be a great football venue. Uh, it was, at least for what it was, just a just a one-off bowl game. Um, that people, it was on a Friday night, so one-off bowl game that the typical person's watching probably um, a couple a couple drinks in. Um, but it was a fun game to be at, it, and um, I. I could see that. Uh, I thought it was Hackenberg's best game that he played at Penn State, including the Bill O'Brien year. The year, um, and you walked out saying, "Wow, I think we could use this as a springboard in the next year." Uh, the only thing I got to say is that Hackenberg game against Wisconsin with Bill O'Brien is still probably my favorite because it was yeah, threw- that, yeah. I just thought he played better that night against Boston College. He he. I mean, he looked fantastic and. Again, it gave you some sort of hope and, 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 and excitement for the future. I do want to list the coaching staffs for all of these because I think the coaching staff is an important part of trying to understand Franklin's tenure moving forward. Bob Shoup was the defensive coordinator. John Donovan, offensive coordinator. Brent Pry was the linebacker's coach. Charles Huff was the running back's coach. Ricky Rainey, quarterback's coach. Gaddis was the receiver's coach. Terry Smith, the corner's coach. Offensive line coach was Herb Hand. Sean Spencer was the defensive defensive line coach. I also want to mention Tyler Bowen was a grad assistant. So pretty interesting group of guys right there. Just from that list, Bob Shoup went on to be a defensive coordinator multiple places. Um, John Donovan has, would be an offense coordinator for another year still, but went on to try to be the coach to Washington for a little bit. And then I think he's now another, he's with the Packers again, so. Um, we'll see what, what happens there. Brent Pry obviously just got the, the head coaching job at Virginia Tech. Charles Huff is the head coach at Marshall, which I have interviewed on this podcast. Uh, Ricky Rainey, head coach of Old Dominion. Josh Gaddis, now the offense coordinator at Miami, but was the offense coordinator at Michigan the year prior. Terry Smith still there. Herb Hand left and went to Auburn and then went, I want to say he went to Texas at one point. And I, and I want to, let's say where he's at. He's, He's the now the offensive line coach at UCF, if you're curious. So um had to look that one up. Spence still with the um or no, I'm sorry, he is now at Florida. He's the yeah, so he's with Florida, the co defense coordinator, um, with the Gators. So um yeah. And then I guess Tyler Bowen, since I mentioned him gratis, and he's the OC at Virginia Tech with Pride. So that's who they had in twenty fourteen. And we'll kind of just briefly touch on that as we go through all of these. But keep that in mind because a lot of those guys went and did a lot of great things. And as we get into 2015, I guess real quick, if you had to choose one most important game, Sean, from that 2014 season, what would it be? Um, I'd probably pick... Um, I'll, go, I'll go with the... I'll, 
I'll go with an optimistic one, uh, and I'll pick a win. Um, I'll go with Boston College, um, just because, just because kind of what we already covered. You kind of got a feeling that things were going to be all right, and you know, kind of keep the faith after a mediocre season. Uh, so I'd probably go. I'd probably go with that Boston College game. I agree. I agree. I'll just keep it that. I agree. Starting 2015 season, I was at this game. Were you at this game at Temple? No, actually, fun fun fact about that game. Um, I spent two years. Well, my so I was a student at. The, we were both students at the time. I believe, right? You were right. Yeah, that was my first year. That was your freshman. Ah, so you can kind of relate. So I spent my first year at Marywood, my freshman year, and then my sophomore year I spent at Penn State Worthington Scranton. So my first year in Happy Valley, that was the first game, the 2015 Temple game. I was all excited, even though it wasn't a home game. And it was just a punch in the gut. <laughs> because we we got that we we got a um we got curb stomped that day by Temple. Yeah, it's um Matt Rule, man. Yeah. There's that guy again. There's that dude. Um yeah, it was, and Temple was a good team that year. The offensive line was exposed, though. It was bad. Akeel Lynch had a really good run in that game, and, and that will, run will never be remembered because of how awful the offensive line played. I mean, they rushed three at some times, and five guys couldn't stop any of them for even a second. Um, and it was a 17-point loss. People were then calling for Franklin's head immediately. All the optimism that he had going into the year was was completely drained. It was the you know the first time Penn State lost a temple since I don't even remember when they said it was. Um it it was not a good not a good opening weekend for Penn State. I think I think the Steelers lost that day too by the way. That weekend too. So. Uh yeah, rough for Western PA. <laughs> um yeah, that that was that was tough. Uh, but like you said, Temple was very, very good that year. Um, it also was the first game that, because I kind of gave the whole coaching staff a break from 2014. It was the first game that I really thought we might need to get rid of John Donovan. Because uh, I just remember being so amazed with the lack of creativity. And they kept running that stupid jet sweep to Brandon Polk, and it wouldn't go anywhere. Mm. And I kept saying, why are we running this still? <laughs> Forgot about the old jet suit to Brandon Polk. Oh my god, I, I couldn't stand seeing it anymore. So that was the first time that I started thinking I think this guy's incompetent. Well, it got better, at least. Because then there was a and this I remember camping out for Nittanyville, and this was a grueling stretch. It was five straight home games. And it was exhausting at the time. I was like, holy crap. With the stripe out, the first ever stripe out, I believe, against Rutgers. And Penn State looked good. I mean, they beat Indiana 29-7 to kind of cap that off. And you're like, okay, so they're 5-1 and one going on the road at Ohio State. Like, can they do anything? Number one Ohio State at the time, and, and they get blown out 38-10. to 10. Um, It wasn't really ever close. This was one of the few games where, like, later on you could argue maybe they, they, they played better or, or had opportunities. This is one of those games where, they had a little chance. There was that holding call on a long Sa- Saquon run, 
that that may have made you believe, but all in all, I what well, this is a game I think Saquon ended up with 195 yards rushing or something, and they they still only scored 10 points. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he outplayed Ezekiel Elliott that night. And I remember, they, I remember, like, when I stopped watching, and I was like, "Is he better than Zeke?" <laughs> and at that time, I don't think he was yet. Uh, but you really saw the potential there with Saquon. Yeah, and it was one, and he, it was just him doing it by himself. And it's hilarious that he played really well, and they still lost by twenty eight. Um, I was at that game actually. Um, Maryland game was that the Maryland game was that one in M and T Bank Stadium. The only thing I remember about that one was uh, Penn State had the lead late, and they it was like the very first time, and it wasn't the very first time, but it was the first time I really remember them having a lead late. And they were unable to run the ball to kill the clock, and they actually gave Maryland one more chance at the end. Um, that is that is one of the first times that really happened, and that's something that would continue to happen pretty much until now. So that was one of the early times that happened, and and you can blame the offense line, you can blame the running game, whatever you want to do. But that was one of the early moments I remember. Like, well, he has to. They they threw it on third down, and everyone's like, "Why didn't you run the ball?" I'm like. Well, they, they haven't been able to run the ball all day. Like, I don't blame them for not running the ball right there. But that was one of the first times they failed to do the four-minute offense. Yeah, and like I said, it was a theme uh, that – it was the beginning of a theme that would continue really to this day. Um, they just they, – they couldn't run the ball at all that day. Uh, I think – I think Hack played pretty well that day too, if I remember correctly. He had a couple back shoulder throws for touchdowns. I, I don't know to who, but – yeah, he he had a couple of nice throws for what it's worth. Yeah, I think that was a good hack game. Good, a good hack day. Um, didn't finish very well though this season. I went to the Northwestern game actually. Um, not not a good one there. Lost at Northwestern. Grant Haley had the dropped interception. Um, Michigan. I think that was right before Thanksgiving. Um, that was the noon whiteout against Michigan. And even that game, Saquon, again, had a big run early, and I think they only ended up with a field goal. Yes. And that kind of set the whole tone for that game. And um, then they went out to Michigan State. And, Sean, I'll let you explain what the heck happened out in Michigan State. We got killed. Big man uh, touchdown killed. There was an offensive lineman who ran for a touchdown at the end. And we'll get into it when we get to 2016, but uh, Penn State – did not forget that the next year. <laughs> that was embarrassing for so many different. Was it? What happened? Was there an inter... Penn State get an interception at one point? Koa Farmer get an interception and then fumble it earlier in that. I don't remember. <laughs> Something happened that was I don't remember what happened, but there was a lot of weird things that went on in that game. But they made Connor Cook look like the best freaking quarterback in it. I mean, they were just ran the ball and then hit play action over the top, but it was it was a bad game. That was one of the games you couldn't even blame the offense. It was like just everybody together played awful. Yeah, that was probably the worst defensive performance of the Franklin era, uh, if I had to guess, uh, if I had to pinpoint one. Um, also, but I want to touch on the Michigan game real quick. I think that was the last time Saquon ever got caught from behind. And... If that was the next year or the year after, there's no way anybody catches him on that long run. 
that was the only knock going into the next year was, okay, he doesn't seem to have that top-end speed, and you're right, that was fixed for 2016. So I don't know how you just fix that, because I'm pretty sure if I just said I could do that and get it faster, like, that doesn't happen for me. Um, <laughs> no. They go to the... Right, and, and and that Michigan State team in 2015, that's the year they went to the playoff and got obliterated by Alabama, correct? Is that right? Yes. I think so. Yeah. So yeah, they didn't. They, they, the, were, they beat Iowa in the championship. Yeah, that was a really boring Big Ten yes. championship game. Um, I do want to say they went to the Tax Slayer Bowl and played Georgia, lost by seven. Georgia had an interim coach at the, for that game. Um, Trace played in that game. Yes. And that was kind of the beginning of the Trace era. But I always highlight this when we talk about the Tax Slayer Bowl because that was the moment where Georgia kind of decided that they wanted to be good at football, like really good at football. And they made the commitment to become really good at football. And it's an interesting kind of journey from where they are now to have won a national championship and to see where Penn State kind of is and kind of see where and how the journeys have kind of gone since they have met at this game. Because you could argue both of them were in a similar situation at this, at this juncture. Yeah, that was the last game before the Kirby Smart era. I remember Kirby getting interviewed during the game. Uh, and yeah, that was really when they decided, like, we're tired of just being a good program. We want to be an elite program. And <laughs> kind of referencing a little bit of the great elite thing that James Franklin brought up at the press conference in 2018. Um, but that's when they really decided we're going to go all in. And also that game, it was the first time we ever saw Trace. Um, and the questions did start to begin, uh, and I don't know where you stand on this, uh, why didn't Trace play earlier in the season? If you know, he they came knew in... that that offensive line was so bad, and Hack really wasn't that good that year, why not play him? He did, you know... I remember this distinctly. Other people don't claim to have heard it, but Hack came in, or Hack got hurt in the Maryland game, and McSorley came in for a two plays. First of all, I am confident that I heard cheers when Hackenberg got hurt. I will never forget them, never forget the cheers, and then, um, and then obviously, and that wasn't like when McSorley came in there cheering. That was like Hackenberg got hurt, and I heard cheers. So I want to, which sucked, but I, I thought I did hear that. And then McSorley did play a couple of plays. I think they went backwards, honestly, and then they punted. But I'm sure it was a very conservative John Donovan style thing. So, look, I don't know if John Donovan was going to be able to coach Trace McSorley anyway. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Because I don't think John Donovan can coach anybody. <laughs> um, but you got to think, just with how leaky, the, and I'm being kind saying leaky, the offensive line was Trace's athletic ability and just being able to avoid pressure. It probably would have helped that year. And that just wasn't the kind of quarterback hack was even at his best. It's just not who he was. He wasn't, he wasn't mobile much. He, he, he was a little mobile, uh, but he wasn't that that wasn't his calling card and he didn't have the best pocket presence in the world so he didn't help his offensive line much he didn't do them any favors either i think trace could have really helped during that season but it's easy it's it's easy for me to say uh um how many years later uh seven years after 
sitting well, in the th- podcast and being live there at that time. Right. And the only thing I have to say about that is there was there was a grind between what Franklin's philosophy was because he wanted a mobile quarterback. Like, he wanted Trace. And so that's, I think, why there was some sort of, you know, some sort of tension between Hackenberg and Franklin. But also, Hackenberg was a five-star guy and should have been the guy. Like, you shouldn't even be thinking about putting in Trace McSorley, who was a three-star safety, over the number one quarterback, you know, in, in his class. Like, that just, you don't do those kind of things because that's not how things are supposed to go. So I, I understand why, whether that was right or not, I understand why that didn't happen. Favorite or most important game from this season, Sean? Um, my favorite game was the Rutgers game because it was my first, I believe that was my first night game at Penn State. And it was awesome. It was a great game to be at, uh, stripe out and everything. Uh, The most important game was probably the Georgia game for the reasons that we talked about. It was our first glimpse into what Trace could do. uh, And it was really the passing of the torch. I'm going to go ahead and say the Michigan State game because I think that fueled a lot of 2016. On top of that, that was also the reason John Donovan got fired and brought in Jomo. So it was twofold. It was, yeah, John Donovan getting fired, and also there was some sort of fire being lit. So that's what I'm thinking there. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I I like that answer uh, because I think I remember seeing a, like they did a show on the 2016 team, and Marcus Allen, and after that 2015 Michigan State game, Marcus Allen and Saquon were walking off the field. And Marcus Allen said to Saquon, that's never happening again. So I think that really lit a fun fire under that group that mostly all came back the next season. Right, and I think there was something similar that was said after the Michigan game in 2016, but we'll get there momentarily. Um, Bowen was off of the GA staff at this point in 2015. I do want to mention a guy named Joe Brady was on the, the, the GA staff in 2015. So just kind of keep that in mind. Otherwise, the staff pretty much the same in 2015. Let's jump to 2016. Pretty decent year for Penn State. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they did all right in 2016. I mean, I think everyone's always going to remember what was the, the the Cinderella run, and I and I get that. Like you know, they rattled off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine straight. So I I get that. And by the way, a lot of them were against ranked opponents at the end of the season. So. You know, or when they were ranked, I should say. Uh, but I, I think people need to really remember just how quickly this thing turned around. Because going into this year, I mean, Franklin was already on thin ice. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. You lose in the way you lost at the end of the previous season. You go into this season, and we're talking about reflecting on Franklin. At this point, Sean, I would say... He's in more of a hot seat going into 2016 by a long shot than how people feel about Franklin right now going into 2022. Oh, absolutely, and understandably so, because James Franklin just hadn't proven anything yet. At least out of Penn State, he proved that he could win some games at Vanderbilt, which is an accomplishment in itself, but at Penn State, he just hadn't proven anything yet, uh, where now he does have some, um, you know, he has, he has that Big Ten championship ring, uh, he, and he's won a couple New Year's Six Day Bowls. 
So he has more cachet than he did then. And it was people were ready to fire him after 2015, which I thought was absurd. Uh, Just you had to look at the scholarship uh, situation and then going two and two to start the season. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to the two and two in a second. I do want to say I don't care who you are. I don't care what kind of program you inherit should always get three years. I don't care. Two years is dumb. So the two year people, anyone I wrote down notes like my one cousin, she wanted she was on Facebook complaining about Franklin after the Temple game, wanting him fired. I mean, he's played, he's coached, what, 13 games? Like, come, cut him a little bit of a break. Now, I don't think it was the end of the world after they lost the pit in the way they lost the pit because they had a chance late and, you know, they came back and they showed resilience, which we would see for the rest of the season. It was a disappointing loss at pit for a lot of reasons, but I don't remember feeling super, like, this is the end of Franklin, or this is the end of the season already. Like, I didn't get those vibes, at least after Pitt. Was that kind of how you felt? I was more upset about the Pitt loss after the season ended. Because I knew if we beat Pitt, we would have been in the playoffs. But I had no idea that was the case after the Pitt game. I felt the same way. I was like, eh, well, I don't think we're very, I don't think we're that great. And we played hard, and I had optimistic. I was optimistic about Joe Moorhead, so that was all good. And I was optimistic about uh, Trace, despite the late interception and uh, the way and Saquon looked unbelievable. So there, I thought there was some things to be optimistic and excited about after, actually after that game. Yeah, the only other thing I'd like to add to that is they were scoring points, right? Thirty-nine points was a big thing. I mean, we didn't go over the points in 2015 a lot, but I can tell you right now, like, they scored 37 against San Diego State, and they scored 39 against Illinois. Like, those are the two highest in 2015. So for 2016, you come out, you drop 33 on Kent State, and you drop 39 against Pittsburgh on the road. You're like, okay, like, you know, we can say what you want how they scored them, but they scored 39 points against a Power 5 team, which wasn't something John Donovan was doing very often. Um, in the in the first two seasons, so that that was optimistic. They they go and then beat Temple at home, um, thirty four twenty seven, which was a close game. Which some guy was coaching Temple still, I believe. Oh, it was so great to beat Temple that day too. I know we're not going every game, but their fans were super obnoxious for a whole year up to that point. There yeah. five fans that they have. That was that was a that was a big game to win. Um, on the road at Michigan, I was at this game. This is truly when I honestly, for the first time, thought maybe, maybe the Franklin thing isn't isn't right. It was a forty nine to ten beatdown, in my opinion, against a Michigan team who was number four at the time, but I didn't think was anything special. That was a Jabril Peppers, I believe, Heisman campaign season, which didn't make any sense. I mean, they were good, but I didn't think they were you know world beaters, and they definitely weren't thirty nine points better than us. Yeah, and that game was just a, a, a cluster F. Uh, our whole linebacker core went down. Grant Haley was hurt. Uh, and I want to say there was somebody, there was somebody on the defense. Someone was targeting. Yeah, one was, uh, I, I believe, it was a weak sauce targeting. And then Jan Johnson, who ended up being a, good, a pretty good player for us, he tore his ACL, like his second play in there. So it was kind of a... Uh, um, a culmination of things. I remember being disappointed with how the offense played too, and really wondering about Trace 
particularly about his size, I was like, is this guy big enough? Because he just looked tiny trying to avoid those pass rushers from uh, from Michigan. So my thing about this and why Michigan has the tendency to do this is the way that he would um, Don Brown would play defense with the press man. Basically, you were either going to win or and and have big plays against him, or you were going to get crumbled. Like that's just the way he played. And so, if he could stick on you guys, on your receivers, then his guys would eventually get pressure on you, and there's nothing you can do. You can't wait for his zone to open up. Like that's just not going to happen, in man. Um, yeah, and I think that that scheme is overall pretty silly, because uh, when he played, when they went against better teams, uh, I know they beat us that year, but generally when they go against better teams, they give up a bunch of points because you can't just play man to man against all those athletes all the time. Right. And, and, and well, they proved that, um, you know, previous years after that. So that game though, to me was like a moment. I was like, Oh shit. Like maybe this isn't right. Maybe this isn't the best. Maybe, maybe, maybe Franklin isn't the guy. I, I will be honest and tell you, I, I was having doubts at that point. I, I was like, you obviously got to let him finish the year. But I was like, I don't know. I mean, th- I didn't think Michigan was that good, and we just lost by 39 to Michigan. So I was like, well, how good does that really make us? And it, at this point, whether or not you know you can say it truthfully to yourself or not and, and believe it, it was, well, you're, we're three years away now from the sanction stuff. Like, it's hard to really convince people that's the issue. He's bringing in his own guys. Trace is his guy. The offense line, sure, might not be there, but we can't be 39 points worse. Yeah, and that was the thing. It was getting blown out by Michigan. It would be one thing to lose a close game and you look at the offensive line and we just didn't have the guys then. Uh, because, by the way, at the time, the offensive line was still horrible. Um, but they, we shouldn't have lost in the way that we lost. And we, we still shouldn't have lost in the way that we lost. Um but I have a feeling, Corey, that things might get better for this team. Yeah, yeah, and, and things get better really quickly. Um, again, Joe Brady was on the staff. Um, pretty much only a new addition was Matt Limegrover came in uh, for Herb Hand at that point. Um, Moorhead, obviously, we, we touched base on him a little bit. Uh, Huff was still there. Rainey was still there. Gaddis was still there. That That was one thing I guess I was – most impressed with when Moorhead came in, he didn't bring in like a bunch of his own guys. Like he kept a lot of the former guys. And I don't know if that was a concession by him or not, but it seemed like it gelled really well, which nowadays you don't see like that much. So many guys just stay. Usually someone might be better that they didn't get the OC job. I mean, he almost kept everybody. Yeah, I think, yeah, almost everybody came back. Um, Herb Hand, I, I I don't know what his story was. I, I at the time I seem to remember he wasn't thrilled with being at Penn State overall, and he wanted to get back down south. Um, and I don't think we really missed him all that much, to be honest. Um, and I, uh, Mo, Joe Mo really didn't clean house, but you have to remember too the offensive staff, although we didn't know at the time, it was pretty good. Uh. Charles Huff, Josh Gaddis, those guys have had really good recruiters. Yes, exactly. So you didn't really need to get clean house there because you could kind of see the staff talent. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So anyway, so the Minnesota game, 
I've always pinned this as as the biggest game in the season because of how they were able to. We talked about Irvin Charles a little bit earlier, um, and, and that catch and what that meant at the time. They had the late drive. Uh, Trace ran around, scrambled around, was able to get them in field goal. I can't believe that field goal was even good to get them to overtime, but they did it. Saquon breaks loose um, and, and wins the game. And I remember getting back to my hotel room and celebrating as if we had beaten somebody really important. And it was just Minnesota, but it was like, holy shit, we we won a game we really needed to win. And I don't know, at the time, it just felt like that was a game that I really needed to remember for the rest of my life. And it, it ended up being one of those. I know exactly how you feel. Um, so I remember from that game the most, it was halftime. We're down 13-3. And I'm sitting there. It's a chilly early October day. And I remember thinking, we have a better team than these guys. And this is the type of game that our coaches are paid to go and win and figure out a way to get it done. And then to be able to get it done in the way that they did in, you know, and it was a pretty epic over time. I didn't even... I couldn't even watch the field goal to tie it. I actually, you know, you, when you're in the student section, your hands are up. I actually looked down, and I just heard the ball go after Tyler Davis's foot, and I heard the fans cheering. So I was like, okay, good, he made it. <laughs> and then Saquon's run. It was just a fun, fun game to be at. And I agree with you. I think it was the most important game of the season. Yeah, I think I don't think the Ohio State game happened without it. No, I agree. I agree. And, yeah, and remember, people were, were talking about reflecting on Franklin. Going into that half, there were obvious boos. And I will tell you a funny story. They weren't... I have internal references uh, that, that told me this, that they weren't sure whether or not they should even, when they were introducing people, if they should even put Franklin's name up there. Like That was to the point where they knew that the fans didn't like him at the time. Like That's where they were getting to. Yeah, those Fire Franklin chants were real. Like people were really chanting that at halftime, and um, you know it, it, the the fans had been beaten down. I did not participate in the chance. I didn't agree with them. I I agree with you. Uh, you had to let them finish the season before you think about getting rid of them. But that the week before going into that game, Sandy Barber kind of gave him the kiss of death, which sometimes the kiss of death, saying, "Oh, we have every confidence in the coach." And a lot of times you hear that statement and a few days late, or not necessarily a few days later, but sometime shortly down the road, the coach gets canned. And um, it was important to get that win. I remember being in the tailgate after the game, and I heard someone say, yeah, you know, it was a good win, but man, Franklin still can't coach. So people were still thinking that, but winning kind of cures everything, and it makes people... It all, it'll always make people less critical of you. I don't even think fans truly believed in him until the Iowa game that year. I'm going to be honest with you. Because, like, the Maryland game happened. They beat Maryland. Maryland wasn't very good. Then the Ohio State game happened. We, everybody knows kind of what happened. I don't think we have to flesh that out too much. Um, we, we know the Ohio State game. We know that there were bleachers set up beforehand. We thought that would give us a chance. They came back, whatever, et cetera. And, and that put Penn State, that was the big win that they needed to say, hey, yeah, we're here. That, that win obviously saved Franklin's career at Penn State no matter what. Got it. But I don't think Penn State fans, a lot of them believed that this team was special 
They, they went on the road um, the next week at Purdue and dropped 62, which I thought was never going to be possible. I thought there was going to have to be some sort of big game let down. You're, you're ranked, were they ranked? 12th? At the time, the or twelfth or eighth or something like that in the first CFP rankings. So like they were higher than everyone thought they they were going to be, and everything was going well. And we're like, okay, let's we'll go at Purdue. Like that's a big trap game. They didn't trap it at all. They dropped sixty two on the Boilermakers. But really, it was the Iowa game where everyone thought you know a normal James Franklin team to this point was not going to score that many points against Iowa, and they dropped forty one on the Hawkeyes. I think that is when people realize, okay, we've got a seriously good freaking football team here that that just showed that they can play against good teams and score a lot of points. Yeah, I remember saying to my dad because he he came down that weekend. He went to the game, and i i was walking to, I was walking with him uh, to the car, and I said, "What if Iowa beats Michigan next week? There's no way it happens, right?" He goes, "No, that that's never going to happen." Because I I agree with you. I was like. God, we could win the Big Ten. And you've really started believing, like, yeah, we could be good enough to do it because that night we just played well enough to beat almost anybody in the country. And I agree. That's kind. That was really when fans started really buying in, and not just James Franklin, but that team. Yeah, it was, it was an important one. Obviously, you're right. November 12th, I'll never forget that night, watching it with a couple people in our living room, watching Iowa beat Michigan, and we're like, wow. All we have to do is beat Rutgers and Michigan State, and, and Michigan State wasn't any good anymore at this point, and we're and we have a chance to go to the Big Ten championship. Like, are you kidding me? Like Rutgers and Michigan State, like that's all it friggin' takes. And, and and sure enough, I mean the the Rutgers game at Rutgers, and and that was in the snowstorm, I believe, right? Yes. Um, yeah, that was the game that they took over the student section. Yeah, I was at that game. I didn't participate in that part, but it was an awful game. Um, Miles Sanders actually fumbled the kickoff in the very beginning and almost cut and we they still didn't score, which is funny. But um but that was just one of those games where ever I mean everyone was beating I think Michigan and Ohio State combined for like hundred and fifty to zero on, on Rutgers. So Rutgers was awful. Should have beat him by at least thirty. But again, a James Franklin team scoring thirty nine points on the road against a Big Ten team, just another sign that yeah, in, in terrible conditions I should add. That yeah, they can score points, and this is a completely different offense, and it's for real. Um, the Michigan State game, maybe, and I was so I had the freaking stomach flu, and I remember puking in the tailgating lots afterwards, and it was just an awful weekend. And but I stayed to watch the whole celebration and all, but it was almost like the frustration was let out on Michigan State, like everything that had happened in the previous two seasons. I mean, they were just throwing bomb after bomb. And Michigan State is like, we don't have an answer for this. Like, there's nothing we can do to stop Chris Godwin and Mike Isecki. So I kind of teased this earlier when we talked about the previous Michigan State game. So going into that game all week, so they show PowerPoints throughout the week, you know, Franklin and the rest of the coaches. I guess between almost every slide, they would show the offensive lineman from Michigan State scoring the touchdown. And they would keep showing it to the team and keep showing it to the team. So they were just so, they were still just so angry about what happened last, the last year. And they kind of, they, they did repay the favor because they were, they were going to score every single time they got the ball late. And that game, they didn't, we didn't play that great in the first half. We might have been behind going into the second half or just barely ahead. But then we scored um, almost all of our points in the second half. 
and we still scored 45 points. So that just it, and it also underscores just how explosive that 2016 team was. Yeah, I mean it was, it was something, man. I mean there's no other way to say it. it was something. It was like, wow, like this this team, team is something else. And so they go to the the Big Ten championship and come back from behind and beat Wisconsin. And win the Big Ten. And we talked a lot about the Rose Bowl on on Twitter this week and how we wish we had that game back and and how kind of, you know, it'd be nice. If if Penn State wins that Rose Bowl, I'm not saying it was a game that Penn State had to win to help future. I'm just saying if they win that game, that's probably a top five Penn State game of all time forever. Like, never going to be a not. Like, there were so many highlights in that play, in that game, where, like, if they win that game, like, that is is one of the games you show your eight-year-old that he falls in love with Penn State football. Like, that is that is the game you show. That. Like, why wouldn't you show that? And for, we will forever not have that as a game. And not that it wasn't a great game and it was fun to watch, but it's not the same when you lose it. I, yeah, you just get, it was such a gutting loss because it was such a great game. And, you know, when I, when I hear it was a great game, in my mind, I always go, but we lost. But we lost. Oh, Saquon's won, and then we lost. Oh, this happened, then we lost. And I, it, it's just so gutting to think about because, I mean, for, first of all, like st- stuff that people don't remember from that game was we were down fourteen nothing before we got off the bus, and I really think if we got off to a better start, we definitely win that game. Or if Brandon Bell doesn't get hurt on the interception return, we win that game. There are just so many little things that if they go our way, I really think Penn State walks out of there with the win. But that's not the way it works. Not the way that works. But, okay, reflection time on Franklin at this point. 2016, and... He's won the Big Ten championship. He lost in the Rose Bowl. What are your thoughts on Franklin at this moment? Uh, all-time high approval for me. I really felt bought into what he was doing. And just to turn around in the season, I, I felt very, very confident going into 2017, especially knowing that we had pretty much everybody back except Chris Godwin and Brandon Bell. Yeah, I mean, you lost a couple guys defensively, um, Sickles as well. But yeah, I mean, you you had you you had a lot of the guys coming back, and and a lot of young pieces too, right? I mean, there was like Tommy Stevens was only a redshirt freshman at the time, so like he was going to play more. DeAndre Tompkins was only a redshirt sophomore at the time, so he was going to play more. Um, Andre Robinson was only a redshirt freshman. Like you had a lot of young guys that you're like, okay, like you know. These other guys are going to be able to help out in positions where we're, we're a little concerned about. So there, there was a lot of it. Uh, Ryan Buckholz, for example, was a redshirt freshman that year. Um, Manny Bone was only a sophomore. So there was yeah, there was just a lot of excitement, and I agree. I mean, I don't know if anyone could say otherwise. Like, was there any concern though? Or maybe we were we judging him. Was this maybe bad for the perspective? I guess when we look back on it now, was were they premature on their Big Ten championship? I think they were, and it's not for 
I think we were so good in certain areas that it overshadowed a lot that that it it covered up a lot of the areas where we were still lacking. Like like depth overall in the roster. Um like the offensive line. But we were just so good at the skill position levels. There were there were NFL guys all over. There um whether it was Godwin or uh, Saquon, obviously, uh, Mike Gesicki, they were all on the same offense. And they were all guys that are either pro bowlers or borderline pro bowlers. So I do think it was a little premature. But at the same time, when you look at some of that talent, I mean, it's no mistake that they that they made it as far as they did either. And that they also had other guys step up that year, like um, like like Jordan Smith. Um, in the secondary, that they, they were, they, they were pretty, that they were kind of deep in the secondary. Even though overall, I think the depth was lacking a little bit. Um, and they had got they had guys like that step up. And I, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but yeah, I, overall, I do think it was a little bit premature when you look at the depth and numbers perspective. Sean, it might have been the worst, best thing for Frank because. I don't want to say the 2017 team didn't deserve to have the Big Ten expectations because I think the 2017 was a lot better than the 2016 team. But, but I don't know. I don't know what you put there because I don't. I don't look at that 2017 season, and I get it. Like you could argue they probably could have been in the playoff. Like I, I get that. Um, but I just don't. At that point, with that offensive line. I don't see how you could say that the 2017 season, you know, ended up being a failure. I mean, I get it. I get what what could have been, and I get what the the opportunity against Ohio State. But you still go on it and you win the Fiesta Bowl relatively comfortably. I know technically there's another game where they weren't able to run out the clock. By the way, um, I think at that like, and we can talk 2017, but I just think that when you go from 2016 to 2017, you're taking a big jump in the perspective of James Franklin. Like, that is the moment where things change. Like, it goes from giving him a chance to expecting him to do things. And I think that's a big, when we talk about it, and we talk about going into 2022, that is that is what we're talking about, right? Like, that is the change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really, because, you know, we talked about the first two seasons, but that, this was, the 2016 team was really the first year of sort of, I don't want to say the modern James Franklin because it's still a long time ago now, but James Franklin kind of playing at a full with the full set with with um with the full deck, uh, and he exceeded expectations, and then it was constantly trying to either get back or exceed those, and so far in his tenure he hasn't been able to exceed those to exceed what happened in 2016 and 2017. Um, he met it a little bit. He he met it in 2019, but other than that, he's he, he's kind of he, he's either fallen short or sort of hit a wall at that 11 and two, 10 and two mark. Right. The last thing I want to say on this, and I think Sean, what we're going to do is we're going to break this into two parts, and we'll talk about 2017 and 20 and 20 up to 2021, and then into 2022 uh, next week. Um, 
the last thing I, I, I want to add to what you just said was in 2016, I think the ball bounced their way more than it bounced their way in 2017 and 2018 combined. Like if it, it, I would argue that they got a little bit more unlucky in 2017 and 2018. And if they had even half the luck they had in 2016 and 2017 and 2018, I guarantee they have another Big Ten championship in one of those seasons. Yeah, that's very possible, especially in 2017, because I think we both agree 2017 was that that team was probably a little bit better than the 2016 team. And yeah, you know, and we might get into it at our, at our next podcast, but just freak things like that rainstorm at, in East Lansing. If that doesn't happen, I have almost zero doubt we win that game. Because that was just like an okay Michigan State team, but they were nothing special. And it, well, that goes back to winning games after a loss, too. But we can get yeah. into that more because that, that, that really starts happening. That's when that started happening. <laughs> right. And so we're going to leave it there. But I think that's such an important part. Like 2016 happened, it was good. And I don't think we realized how lucky it was. When you go back and look, watch film, I mean, okay, one, you had Saquon Barkley. So, like, you're lucky that you had Saquon Barkley on your team. That's number one because he made your offensive line and basically made your offensive line that was probably a C minus, probably like a B minus. Yeah, okay, maybe that's a little bit generous, like a C plus. Um, that was the first thing. And that helped your running game tremendously. And just having any sort of running game ability saved so much for McSorley to be able to throw the ball on the outside. The second thing is, you probably have, if you could redo the draft, a, a first-round guy in Chris Godwin and, and, and probably even a first- or second-round guy in Gusecki because he's really got it on and got it going, too. So you had weapons on the outside, and it wasn't just those two, but you had weapons on the outside, and, and we'll see if Deshaun can, can get healthy and, and do things um, with his new home now. But you had weapons that were really effective on the outside to the point where and maybe Sean Clifford just doesn't give his guys enough chances, but there's been nobody that I have been like, and maybe I should rephrase that because obviously Jahan Dotson changed that. But before Jahan Dotson, KJ Hamler didn't have that go up and get it ability really. Um, there wasn't really anybody kind of like that, like where, where we could just bomb it and just know. I don't know how to describe it, John. It was like every time the ball was in the air when Trace threw it in 2016, it just felt like our guy was going to come down with it every single time. And I guess in 2020, in 2019, and 2020, and 2021, I feel like we just didn't have that kind of same confidence. Yeah, and another guy that somehow hasn't been brought up yet by either of us, uh, Zaid Blacknell who was probably the third best receiver, but he, it felt like every game, every big game, he had a, he had a big time catch. Wideout specialist. Yeah. <laughs> he could just go up and get the ball. And he was a, he was a clutch player too. If we needed a catch, just look for number 13. Cause a lot of times he was going to be the one that would come down with it. And he was our third best receiver. So that goes to show you how many big time players we had. And like, and like you touched on, maybe, a lot of that was Trace, because Trace had a lot of those YOLO balls, especially in 2016, where he would just say, uh, well, Godwin's out there somewhere. I'm going to throw it up to him, or Gasicki, or Blacknall, or Hamilton. And they'd go up and get it. 
when Clifford throws the ball up there, like I just think about like I don't know, like think of the Auburn game or or even the Ohio State game last year. When he throws the ball up there, it's like nobody's there and it just gets picked off and you're like, why did he throw that? But I feel like if McSorley would have thrown that ball in the years 2016, Gasecki comes out of nowhere and one hands it. You know what I mean? Like Yeah, those catches were just regular. So I, I don't know how to it's hard to measure that, right? But I think the best way to look at it is say they were early in 2016, and then I think overall, if they just had, and people could say it's not luck, you could say it's coaching, whatever, you can call it whatever you want. I think 2017 and 2018, they were a little bit more on the unfortunate side of how things went, and that's football, right? Like, if you tell me in 2015, and remember, that's the eyes, those are the lenses we're using to look at 2016 early on. If you tell me in 2015, after we lost the Temple, Hey, don't worry. In the next three years, you're going to win a Big Ten championship. I don't care what year it is in. I would prefer if it's all three. But if it's the first year, I'm still going to be okay knowing we didn't win it in 17 and 18 if we still won it in 16. Like, it's a weird way to look at it, but things were still good. And it's hard to, if we looked at it as, uh, as like a triplet, right? If we looked at it every three years instead of every single year. You'd be like, oh well, well they they got they a Big Ten championship in those last three years. Like that's that's good. Um, now, I don't know if that's the case, but we'll save that for another episode. Exactly, I think it's a good place to leave it. So we will be back, Sean. That was a. It's fun to kind of talk about those times because it's it's an interesting. It's it's interesting to see how we looked at James Franklin in those early years compared to how we're kind of looking at him now. We know him a lot more now, too. Right, yeah. Yeah, if, <laughs> we definitely do. Uh, um, as somebody who watches most of his press conferences, I could almost predict what he's going to say with his answers because I've been watching him so long. And we know him on the field. Um, and we know what he does well with, you know, what he doesn't, what he struggle with. But at these early years, there were a lot of things we just didn't know about him. Because he was just this guy from Vanderbilt. Yep, she's a guy that Vanderbilt won us a Big Ten championship in 2016. John, we'll talk 2017 and more next week. Um, but I think that's a good place to do that. I'm glad we fleshed it out more than just kind of rushing through it. So uh, I'm glad we kind of went about it this way. Me too. Me too. And yeah, it went a little longer than I thought, uh, especially those first few years. But there's a lot to talk about because we're covering whole years. Um, and I thought it was a really fun conversation. Yep. Well, for Sean King, I'm Floyd Lascaux. We will see you next time on Hardcore Penn State Football. Thank you,